This morning, as we continue our sermon series, The God You Can Know, I want to draw our attention and prayer to uh, Joel Fair and his wife, Randy, and their family. Um, Joel has been walking us through this series, but uh, Randy got word just a couple of days ago that his sister-in-law was in a hospital with a brain bleed in a very serious situation. Randy and Joel and their family have actually made their way out to California. I would love it if we as a congregation would continue to pray for them in these days. It's appropriate that we would spend time remembering the God that we can know, that we can actually know him and know that he who is transcendent and great and glorious and holy as we'll consider today, is a God who is near, particularly in this time near to the fair household. So please pray for them. This morning we turn to Joshua chapter 24, verses 14 through 22. And in this series looking at the attributes of God, we are going to consider the attribute of God's holiness and his moral perfection. This week. Next week, we have the privilege of again considering the attributes of God as John Menton joins us all the way from South Africa via video. Uh, and we continue in the sermon series with him. And so I hope you'll join us next week there as well. But this morning, we consider the holiness of God. Now, many of you might know the song, Anything You Can Do, I Can Do Better. I've heard a number of recent songs, top 40 sort of songs recently that ring with the same sort of language. It's really at the heartbeat of much of our music to posture, pose, front about our excellencies. Our music, though, is really an expression of our culture. It's an expression of what we believe, or at least what we try to believe. And at the heart of much of our culture is boasting. We boast because we find something that we've managed to do well, and we treat our performance of that thing as though it was the most important thing about us. We elevate our performance in that area above all other things. But then, at other times, we're acutely aware of our weakness And contrasted with our boasting, this causes fear. And out of that fear, we don't perform, but rather we pretend. I have a friend who's a home builder in Wisconsin, and he tells me that numerous times when he's looking over the plans of a future homeowner, one of their questions is whether or not their roof will be higher than all of the other roofs in the neighborhood. But that's not enough. You see, many of these people who want to make sure that their roof is higher than their neighbors can't afford to add another story. And so they ask him to build a false attic. Now, there would be a huge, largely unusable attic space filled with rafters on the interior, and on the exterior, there would be an expensive, large window looking into this impressively tall home. But so that the neighbors wouldn't see the rafters that that are necessary for the home to have the mirage of being grand, 
they would have him build literally a fake wall just inside of the window, sometimes even painting that wall and lighting the wall. Why? Because they're afraid, and so they pretend. They're afraid that they won't measure up to the standards of the neighborhood, and they're afraid to be thought of as they actually are. Friends, this is one of the key realities of pretending and performing. We are afraid to be thought of as we actually are. The line begins to blur between boasting and fear, between pretending and performing. Today we look at God's holiness and his moral perfection. Before this God, there's no room for boasting, and there's no performance that can measure up to him. So it seems that in the face of our God, if we cannot boast and perform to his level, this leaves us only with fear, perhaps pretending. Well, that's where our story in Joshua picks up. Joshua wants the Israelite people to know the fear of the Lord before his holiness. Now, we've heard the passage read, but this morning we are going to focus on verse 19. Please look at it with me. Joshua said to the people, You are not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. Pretty extreme statement. It's in the word. And it is valuable for us to consider this morning. And so we begin by asking the question, what does Joshua mean when he says that the Lord is the holy God? What does he mean that God is holy? In a a book by Tim Keller, he quotes Rudolf Otto, saying that Rudolf Otto had studied all the different religions to find out what they all seemed to have in common when people approached that which they thought was holy. And in that study, Rudolf Otto decided the main thing they all had in common was when they approached the holy, they felt radically unholy. They felt radically unholy. One of the things that we can say about the holiness of God is that before his holiness, we become aware that we are not. Now that may sound quite familiar to you. How many times when we come to the prayer of confession that is intentionally situated after a series of songs that hold up who God is, his greatness, his holiness, his majesty, his power, his moral perfection, do we begin our prayer of confession, confessing, God, you are holy, and we are not. The central, central to the idea of the holiness of God is the idea of the otherness of God. When we say that God is holy, we are not saying that God We are saying that God is other than that which we are. It's not just that he's pure. It's not just that he's morally perfect. It is that he is completely other than that which we are. We can't talk about God's holiness without first talking about 
his transcendence. It's a big word, but it's a simple idea. To transcend means to rise above. But when we speak of God's rising above, his transcendence, it's not a matter of rising a certain distance above. God is not different or other or above by a degree, by a measurable portion. All that God is, he is infinitely. Is God merciful? Yes. To what degree? Is he loving, just, majestic, holy? To what degree? To what standard? By what measure would we say this other than the measure of infinity? A.W. Tozer puts it beautifully. He says, you may find this hard to believe, but God is just as far above an archangel as he is above a caterpillar. The caterpillar is just a furry worm. The archangel stands before the throne of God, crying, holy, holy, holy. But God transcends them both, the archangel and the caterpillar, infinitely in his holiness and glory. There is a degree of holiness, a distance between the caterpillar and the angelic seraphim. But God rises above them both to an infinite degree. God does not rise above the caterpillar in holiness and perfection by 10,000 miles, but above the archangel by a mere 10 feet. The caterpillar and the archangel are both creatures. The infinite chasm is fixed between creator and creature. One will never be the other. One will never rise by some measure, some standard to meet the other. God is transcendent. He rises above by an infinite degree. R.C. Sproul, how could you preach a sermon on the holiness of God and not quote R.C. Sproul? He says this, the clearest sensation, I love that word, the clearest sensation, the feeling that a human being has when he experiences the holy is an overpowering and overwhelming sense of creatureliness. That is, When we are in the presence of God, we are humbled and become most aware of ourselves as creatures. This is the opposite of Satan's original temptation, where he says, you shall be God's, the temptation to deny our creatureliness. God infinitely rises above and not by degree. The angels stand before the throne of God in Isaiah and Revelation the seraphim, and they call out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. God is the infinite creator of all things whose glory is so great and infinite in magnitude that it fills every crack and crevice of the entire earth and has not even begun to be exhausted. So the angels cry, holy, 
holy, holy. Not one, not two, but three times holy. This isn't just holy by addition, and it's not holy by multiplication, and it's not even exponentially holy. It's a Hebrew literary device to emphasize the word. Instead of saying very holy, they would simply repeat the word. R.C. Sproul, again, illustrates this from Genesis chapter 14. In Genesis 14, there's a phrase that's translated in as many ways as there are translations. One translates it that saying there are tar pits. Another translates it saying there are bitumen pits. One says there are slime pits. Well, which is it? What kind of pit is it? Is it a tar pit, a bitumen pit, a slime pit, a big pit, a very pity pit? Why all the trouble with this translation? Because the Hebrew phrase is just the same word put twice. These aren't just pits. These are pit pits. These are the pit sort of pits. Double pits. It reminds me of how my kids, or how when I was a kid, I used to say, you know, I don't like, I I like him, but I don't like like him. I like her. I don't like like her. Because like and like like are different by some magnitude, some degree, right? The word holy is the only word in the scriptures that is used three times. And it's only used of God. Why? Because he isn't just holy. He isn't merely holy, holy. He is holy, holy, holy. He's not merely Lord or God or Almighty. He is Lord, God, Almighty. When we speak of God being holy, We go right to the essence of God's character. He is holy like none other is holy. This is why Joshua says, you are not able to serve the Lord. Why? For the Lord is a holy God. The Israelite people aren't going to be able to serve the Lord until they firmly grasp this. He's infinitely Holy, perfect in his holiness. But if they grasp this, if they begin to understand the transcendent holiness of God, then they will begin to understand their creatureliness and their role to play in this beautiful drama of redemption. Now, if you look again at verse 13 with me, You see, Joshua said to the people, you are not able to serve the Lord for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He is a jealous God. God gives this second reason to the Israelites to be concerned regarding their oath that we will be faithful in the land into which you have given us. Joshua gives us this second reason. God is a jealous God. Here Joshua is explaining what he means by saying that God is holy. If God is infinitely holy, then God will not allow even one ounce of his infinite glory to be denied. 
He neither compromises nor relents when it comes to his holiness and glory. But this is precisely what our sin and rebellion seeks to do. It's the problem with our sin and rebellion. From the beginning, our sin says that we can be our own God. We can be our own standard of righteousness. We can obtain some measure of glory to chip away at the difference between creature and creator. We can measure glory. God, who is perfect in holiness, looks at the creature in that rebellion and will have none of it. He says this phrase, and it's shocking. You don't often hear this as a title of a sermon. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. It's such an important truth statement. I think this is where so much of American cultural Christianity gets the gospel so wrong today. I've spent a lot of time with youth, spending time in youth groups and and watching so often the anemic gospel that is preached among them. Often they're told that we all sin. We, We need to clean ourselves up. We need to make a good effort at it. But don't worry too much, because even if you fall short of your effort, God still loves you and forgives you every time. And that's the sum total of the gospel. Now, that is actually, technically, though lackingly, true. We do need to clean up. We do need to make some effort at being holy. God is Abundant in steadfast love and forgiveness, overflowing with mercies that are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness, unending, infinite in his mercy and grace. But what this youth group kid isn't told is how. How can God be holy and steadfast in love and forgiveness? I mean, it's right that so many youth who go through this anemic gospel proclamation get into their 20s and begin to think, is God a pushover? You can sure make a mess of his glory and name, but if you act sad enough when you pray to him, he'll say, oh, it's okay. I understand how hard it is to be a teenager. Is that the way it works? The same student goes to college and begins to notice how serious some of his or her mistakes have been. How some of the things that he or she has done has really hurt other people. Or perhaps some of the things that other people have done have truly hurt them. But there's God just freely patting sinners on the back, telling them that it's all going to be okay. And the question should arise very quickly, but isn't God holy? Isn't he righteous? And isn't he just? Sin's not okay. It's not okay for all of this mess to go unpunished. God's glory will not be forever maligned. And his creation will not forever suffer under sin and rebellion and curse. How? 
How can I be forgiven and yet know that I am a sinner to the degree that I know that I am? How can those who have hurt me so deeply be forgiven? And all that I am left with is to pretend like I'm better than I am and perform to some artificial standard? Must I pretend that I'm okay with a push over God? Or am I okay to simply perform around churchy people while knowing that on the inside I'm a sinner? How? How does God reconcile his holiness and his grace? And the answer is simple. It all comes in the shape of a cross. This youth group kid needs to hear about the cross. The cross isn't just a place where the individual gets forgiven. The cross is where God in his holiness, his unrelenting, uncompromising justice and glory punishes sin. Listen, this isn't just something that a teenager needs to hear. It's something that all of us need to remember. The greatest demonstration of God's love toward us is the very demonstration of the ends to which God will go to uphold his holiness and demonstrate his glory in the crucifixion of God the Son, Jesus Christ. Say it again. The greatest demonstration of God's love toward us is the very demonstration of the ends to which he will go to uphold his holiness and demonstrate his glory. Friends, it is when we look at the cross that we say this God is no pushover God. God is a God who required and went to the cross to demonstrate his holiness. He will not forgive your transgressions and your sins. He will not simply look them over and move on. He will do something about them and he will see that they are the punishment for sin is justly satisfied to vindicate his holiness. And by grace, he was on the cross for all who believe. When this young person sees sin and suffering, he or she doesn't just see a mushy pushover God. We see a God who has decisively and with great holiness, power and conviction, decisively dealt with sin. Look at verse 19 with me again. Joshua said to the people, you are not able to serve the Lord for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your sins or your transgressions. If for your sake the Lord, if you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do harm and consume you after having done you good. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods. Joshua is warning the people what will happen if they are fickle in their devotion to the Lord. It reminds me of Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 11 verse 44. For I am the Lord your God, he reminds them. Consecrate yourselves, therefore. Be holy, for I am holy. This is the standard of God's righteousness. This is his righteous command. God is holy. 
That is first, though it comes second in the sentence. This is the first and greatest reality. To be holy here means to be set apart for God by means of a wholehearted obedience to the Lord. It means to be unstained by other things. It means to be consecrated to God like a husband who is fully a one-woman man. The one who is holy is a one God worshiper. Just like God is a one God God. God is a jealous God. He will have no other. To be holy is to be a one God worshiper. To acknowledge that God is holy is to know that God is but one God. And in comes the Shema, where for ages the Israelites have remembered and recited, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. To be in the presence of the holy is to become conscious of our lackluster, fickle-hearted, waved-tossed devotion. And to be reminded that the call of God of holiness is that we must be fully, wholeheartedly holy. All about God like God is fully, wholeheartedly holy. Here we're getting a good glimpse of true moral purity. We're getting a glimpse at righteousness. It's not merely an obedience to some set of laws. It is to conform to the whole pattern of who God is with a wholehearted devotion. This is why purity and righteousness must be a matter of faith. Do we believe that God is worthy of our wholehearted pursuit and moral purity? Do we believe this? Moral purity must be a consequence of inner holiness of faith, an actual devotion to the Lord. God alone is God. It's in the presence of his holiness, more than in our contemplation of any other aspect of the character of God that provokes us to remember the godness of God and our own creatureliness. God is jealous for his godness, his holiness and glory, and it will not be shared with another. Now, it is so important for us to remember the holiness of God, but also to remember that that character of God, this attribute of who God is, is fully realized and revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. I would encourage you to turn over to Philippians. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. I'll just read this for us briefly. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is 
Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let me ask this question. Is there any human in history that has ever lived a life that is fully bent on the holiness and glory of the Lord? Any human ever. Was there ever a human life that was truly Godward? From faith to obedience, was there ever a life that was laid down in perfect obedience? At the essence of the holiness of God is God's Godwardness. God's awareness of his own glory and perfection. It's God's awareness that he himself is the very measure and standard of moral perfection. There's no standard that stands outside of God by which the holiness and perfection of God is measured. There is no external ruler by which God is ruled. He is the infinite transcendent standard of holiness by which all creatures are measured. And so I ask again, is there, has there, ever been a person who has been perfectly inclined to reflect the perfection of the holy God before all of creation? And the answer, of course, we've already read it. Philippians chapter 2, Jesus. Jesus alone. Jesus is the man whose life was perfectly Godward. In fact, he himself is the image of the invisible God. He reflected the glory of God because he is himself God. And yet, in his human nature, he did not hold on to or grasp at his own glory. Rather, he laid aside his glory in perfect moral obedience to the will of the Father. Jesus took on flesh. Jesus, in his divine nature, was holy by nature. There's nothing that God does that makes him holy. Hear this. There's nothing that God does. There's no performance that makes God holy. God is by definition holy and morally perfect. There is no external standard by which he is measured. God made humans so that we behold God and we were made to fellowship with his holiness. And this is the place that Jesus has taken on the behalf of all who would place their faith in him. You see, since the fall, we have a broken relationship with our God. We have literally fallen, sinned, and fallen short of the glory of God. So what then does it look like to be holy as a human? Well, we see this by watching Jesus, who took on flesh. Jesus took on creatureliness. Jesus lives the perfect Godward life. Jesus magnifies the holiness and perfection and desirability of God alone. And he is perfectly obedient. He lays down his glory and he takes on shame and suffering and sacrifice. And by means of his life and death, he says, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus' life and death puts on display the holiness of God alone. Therefore, our passage that we just read, God has highly exalted him. But what does this mean for us? What are the implications for life, for congregation, and for a community? Well, back to Joshua. 
what Joshua was saying to the people is that God will not tolerate a half-holiness. God will not tolerate a mixed devotion. God will not tolerate their expressions of perfect obedience that so quickly fall short. He tells the people that you are not able to serve the Lord, for he is the holy God. Joshua knows that he is in the presence of a congregation of fickle people. He has seen how they have turned from God in times past after the idolatry of the surrounding nations, and he sees that God is holy and they are not. Joshua is very well aware of his creatureliness and the creatureliness of those who are gathered on that day. So is there any hope? Can we be forgiven? Can we be reconciled to the holiness of our God? 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Verses 30 through 31, it reads this. You are in Christ Jesus, who became to us the wisdom from God, righteousness and holiness and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. You are not able to serve the Lord to a satisfaction of the standard of his holiness. But Jesus has. You are not able to forgive or be forgiven before a holy and jealous God. But Jesus has taken your place of punishment so that only grace remains for us. So that in that grace being found in Christ, Our sin is justly punished, and grace is justly given. You are not able to be perfectly devoted, holy, and set apart for God. But Jesus set aside his glory and perfect devotion to the Father. The bottom line is this. You are not holy. You cannot become holy. Jesus is your holiness. And as we are found in him... We are hidden in him, and we are transformed. Now, only from this position, from the position of of finding our refuge in Christ, can we imitate Christ in his humility. That's why Philippians says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ. Yours in Christ. Christ. There is a countercultural life for those who are in Christ. Before the holiness of God in Christ, there's no room for boasting and no room for fear. Consider boasting. What boast can you make that will exceed the infinite holiness of God? Go ahead, try it. Try that for your prayer of confession. God, I confess this greatness about myself. What boast can you make that exceeds the perfect obedience and love of the God-man, Jesus our Savior? Galatians 6.14, But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. There's my boast. I have but one boast, and it's not in me. It's in Christ and his perfect work. 
We lay down all our performance before the foot of the cross and cry, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Worthy is the Lamb. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. What about fear? Fear before the holy God, the God who is jealous for his glory. Consider John, first John chapter 4, verses 17 through 18. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Fear has to do with punishment, but we can have confidence for the day of judgment. Why can we have confidence? We can lay aside our pretending that we are not the sinners that we are, approach the throne, and know that we approach the throne of grace. We can confess, and we can do it even publicly. I am weak. In Christ, I am strong. And so the call is for us to go back to our households, to go back to our community groups, and consider 1 Corinthians 1.30. And you will see that Paul was telling the people that it is in their weakness that they are best able to boast in the righteousness, the holiness, and the glory of God in Christ. So the call for us today God, cast out our boasting. Lord God, cast out our fear. Cast out the pretending and performing that is in my heart. Cast out the pretending and the performing that is in our community, even in our church. And we can confess we are not holy. In ourselves, By our pretending or our performing, we cannot become holy. Jesus, you are our holiness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, hallowed be your name. Your name alone is holy. In you is found every perfection. Lord, we thank you that in your holiness you do not deviate, you will not bend, you will not bring down your holiness. And yet you yourself came down in your holiness, in Christ to dwell among us. And not only to dwell among us, not only to live righteous, but to suffer the righteous punishment for our unholiness in our place. Thank you, God, for your holiness, perfect in your grace. Lord, I pray that in that place, we will not then pick up performance, we will not pick up pretending, but we would rest on the holiness, righteousness, justice and grace and mercy, perfection, transcendence and imminence, of our God, resting in you, everything changes. 
We're no longer striving. We are no longer grasping. We are no longer pretending or performing. We are resting in Christ, and there we find a whole other way, a a light yoke, an easy burden to carry in this world that is good. Lord, I pray that you would work on the basis of your holiness and perfection and grace, a change in your people that we might become in Christ holy. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for working among your church this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.